Good morning. I'm excited to be here. My name's Elizabeth Tamlin, and I get to be with the children on the second floor each week, which I just adore. And um, when I was looking and preparing for this lesson, I thought about, you know, when we're up and when we're down on the children's floor, every moment is a wow moment. We have lots of wow moments. We have wow over the um, the story, and we have wow over the, we're going to the playground, and we have wow over the music and, and all the details of the morning. And so my prayer for us this morning is that we will regain the wow factor with this passage of scripture, because as I studied it, I'm, I thought this, this is holy ground. This is, this is the crux of our belief. And so um, as I reviewed the chapter, you know, at first I thought, wow, this could be like a novel. I mean, it's got all the, all the parts of it. Um, Betrayal, death, good versus evil. It could be a mystery when those tombs opened up. That's pretty mysterious. Um, or a history book because it is true. And in children's, we talk about all the time that everything in the Bible is absolutely true. And we love that. We don't have to decide which part is true or which isn't. We know that all of it is. And we, we reinforce that every week. <clears throat> it also made me think of, as I was watching the news one night, like this could be the news, this chapter in the Bible. Something like our top stories of the night. In today's news, we learn of a cycle of events that include a betrayal and remorse, finally leading to the suicide of a local man. Accusations by the government. Is this man innocent or guilty? A misunderstanding by the people turns into a dangerous mob mentality. A, high, a man in a high-level government position does not stand up for what is right and an evil man goes free, why an innocent man is condemned. So finally, in local weather tonight, some unusual occurrences in this chapter. <laughs> Darkness in the middle of the day, followed by an earthquake. So anyway, but I, as I looked at all this, I thought this is so amazing, this is a lot in this one chapter of scripture. But the one thing that we would not see on the nightly news is the, is the main point of this book, is that love pays it all with nothing in return. First um, John 4.10, tells us this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is not natural for us to grasp. It's love beyond all measure or of logic. And it's too much really for us to comprehend with our finite minds. It, it got, being such a big God, such an infinite God, how can we wrap our hands or our arms around this idea? So I thought we're gonna divide it into two sections. We're gonna first look at who was there in, um, in these last day of his life. And also what were, so that's gonna be kind of the first part. And then the second part is gonna be, what, do, what can we learn from the man on the cross and how did he treat people? When somebody is in their final hours and they're like he was coherent and whatnot, what can we learn from what, how he acted and how he treated people? So we're gonna start out with the characters and we're gonna try to identify which one which one would you be? And, you know, at first when we look at them, oh, that bad Judas, and oh, can you believe that mob? But let's look at it and see what, what's behind each one and see if we can identify with some of them. And it starts out with Judas when he, when it, in verse three, it says, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. And it goes on. And, I, you know, I just think about, you know, Judas, I mean, he was in the inner circle. He was on the in crowd. He was right there. He saw everything going on. So how did he go from that to betraying his friend. And that later this led to remorse and he, he returned the money and he went out and hung himself. And many of the authors that I studied point out that he was not repentant, he was remorseful. And there is a difference. The remorse caused him to ha hang himself because he didn't have hope. So he, he, he changed his mind and many would even point out that perhaps he was sorrowful that he got caught and not necessarily that that he was sorry for what he did. I think perhaps he was sorry, he, he, was, he was kind of okay with the idea until he realized this is really gonna have some bad consequences. And so 
In Psalm 10:2, we read, in his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. And Psalm 1:6, which I love that whole psalm, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And I believe um, that it starts with the thought. You know, he, he didn't just all of a sudden rise up and betray him. He had to have had some some sinful thoughts in his head that then led to his actions. And it reminds me of James 1.15, after sin, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So sin starts in our mind. And so we want to just throw rocks at Judas and say, you can't believe you did that bad thing. But we need to be thinking about our thought lives and, and how we control that. Um, and th- so I ask you, in the, in the scene here, is this you? Are, are you finding it okay to act selfishly for your benefit, as long as it's not terrible, harmful uh, effects that happen. And um, also to consider yourself, are you dissatisfied? Um, look at what great grief this caused Judas. And so we want continu- to think about what's in our thought life and how do we control that. Um, next person I want to look at is Pilate, the governor. And um, a couple verses that I pulled out from him are verse 18. For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. He knew that. I mean, that's stated in Scripture. Um, He's not wondering. He's not really having to make a decision. He knows. I think he knows that Jesus is innocent. Um, And then verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. So he's, he's, you know, he's kind of caving into the crowd here. And then in verse 26, then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So he didn't really want this job. I mean, I think that he would have been perfectly happy to hand it off to somebody else, but he happened to be in Jerusalem. The Jews needed a Roman to be able to condemn somebody to death. They couldn't do it on their own. So Pilate was hoping this whole thing would go away. He didn't listen to his wife. You noticed in that verse about not listening to what she had to say. And... Um, He tried to wash it away, but he was a people pleaser. He caved into the pressure. What a worm. I can't believe it. I think he believed that Jesus was innocent, but he didn't want to be, he didn't want to be in trouble also with Caesar if the people went and complained to him. And he just didn't stand up for what is right. So I ask you, are you a people pleaser? Um, Are you not standing up for what is right? Or are you washing your hands of something uh, and then trying to blame others? Um, I love this verse, Isaiah 57, 1, hear me. You who know what is right, you people who have my law in your hearts, do not fear the reproach of men or be terrified by their insults. And we know that. We've heard of, you know, fear of men versus fear of God. And I think that Pilate was much more concerned about what the people thought. Kind of as a subcategory, I thought about his wife, and it made me wonder, um, when she tells him to stay away from him, it makes me wonder if she later said something like, I told you so. (laughs) But as we move on to the chief priests, and again, we just want to throw stones at them because we think, are you kidding me? You knew scripture. How'd you miss that? Um, They knew the law. They knew the prophecies. And somehow, I think because of fear, they missed who the Messiah was. They had the info. They had, um, from Isaiah 53, they, they would have known this verse, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. So they would have known this. But I ask you, are there areas in your life where we are like the chief priests, and we are blinded by something that we cannot see in our own lives because we really want our way above the truth? And I think that's what happened to the chief priests. And Matthew 5.20 tells us, For I tell you that unless unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, 
you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So they knew everything, and they still just were somehow blinded to it. And, and before we throw those stones, I think that can happen to us as well. We want something more than we want truth. Um, as we move on, we look at the mob. And verse 23, but they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And growing up, I went to a church where we kind of reenacted this on Palm Sunday, I believe. And, um, and, and I, you know, I used to just think, oh, gosh, can you believe those terrible people in that mob? Somebody should have stood up for what was right. But then I found myself recently at a Mavs game. And you just get into the, you know, you get into the flow. And I believe that some of these people were like Maverick fans, just shouting, go Mavs. You know, just got into the moment of it without really thinking about what they were doing. And so I ask you, do you sometimes know what is right, but you don't stand up for it? That little tidbit of gossip while you're standing in a group and you think, I should back out of this or I should say something, but instead you just just stand there and listen. And so that's really about the same kind of thing. You're going along with the crowd um, and you're, you're not standing up for what is right. Exodus 23, 2 says, do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. But that's hard to do. And from afar, we can look at that crowd and go, I can't believe nobody stood up. But then I've been to the Mavs game where I'm yelling, go Mavs, when I don't really care. <clears throat> no, I really do care. My husband will watch this later. Um, okay, then we look at um, Barabbas, and this is all of us. You know, this guy, he was rotten to the core, and yet somehow, by some miracle, he was saved. And that is what all of us, see, the, the Lord setting us free. Psalm 146, 7 says, he, ups, he, up, he upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. Amen. This is us. And um, we don't deserve, we don't deserve the... Um, the, what, we, what we get from, from what he did on the cross for us. And then we look at the soldiers, and again, you think, man, they were mean. They mocked him, stripped him, crown of thorns on his head, gave him a staff as a scepter. They spit on him. These are terrible acts. And you think, you know, gosh, they're just terrible, terrible, terrible. Point your finger at them. And we may have never flogged anybody, but have we ever had mean thoughts of someone in our hearts? Have we ever maybe wished something bad on somebody? Because when I look in Matthew 5, I read that you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. So Jesus is telling us we are like these mean soldiers when we have mean thoughts about people. We don't have to actually flog someone to be, uh, to be in the same category of, of the evil that they did to him. And so um, that's another category. You know, you look at all these people just from, from afar and you think, well, I'm not like that. Thank goodness. I'm not like that. Thank goodness. But if you look at each one of them, we all have a trait that could be like that, where we are going along with the crowd or we're people pleasing or we are um, having evil thoughts about somebody in our heart. Then there's some other characters in this. Simon of Cyrene who carried the, helped carry the cross. He, was, uh, he helped when he was forced to. Then we have Joseph who helped get him buried and get him a brand new tomb. And I, I thought to myself, he had to really act quickly because, um, because it had to have been very quickly to, to make that happen. And that is key to, you know, being able to believe what, this, what the story holds in that he was put into a, a tomb that had never been used. Um, we've got the robbers on each side of him and then the centurion who finally, he believes at the last minute. When you look at all that happened, you think, well, certainly everyone believed, an earthquake and all those things. 
But um, the last person that I want to concentrate on um, as, a, as a main character was his mom, Mary. And, you know, you've been the mom with your newborn getting their shots, and you know that how, how much you grieve when you see them hurt. Or you've been the mom of the, the adolescent who's been hurt by some words at school. Um, but so I know she was heartbroken. She was, and I think she was probably shocked at how this was all playing out because I, I looked up again, and just what the angel had told her, 33 or 34 years earlier from the book of Luke. You, Mary, are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Do not be afraid. You have found favor with God. And then he goes on to say, he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob and his kingdom will never end. So, you know, she's probably thinking, I should have written that down. Is that what he said? Are you, how is this working out? So here she is at the foot of the cross or somewhere nearby. And she's thinking, is that what the angel, are you, how's this working out? How is this kingdom? I just can't imagine. And so as a, as a mother, how painful, but then she's just trying to figure out how this all works. And I think she so well represents love, the, the verses we all know from 1 Corinthians. And I love as we skip down to verse seven, that it always protects, always trusts, always hopes and always perseveres. And I think that was his mom while she, while she watched him suffer. But what I love about Mary is that she didn't completely understand, and she still believed. And that is what we are called to do as well. So um, I ask you, with all these characters, if you were at the foot of the cross or, or somewhere nearby, who would you be? Would you be the dissatisfied Judas, not controlling your thought life? Would you be the wormy, people-pleasing, not standing up for what is right, Pilate? Would you be the mob? going along without regard for right or wrong? Or would you be the faithful and devoted Mary, believing but not completely understanding? And I think that is what we are called to do. Then, of course, there was God's part and the way he had to turn away to allow Jesus to be sin offering for us. And because he is fully just, which is part of his character, he had to turn away and let this plan go forth. And um, you know, there were some amazing miracles that happened, and, and it, it does amaze me that people didn't notice or get it when it talks about darkness for three hours smack dab in the middle of the day. I mean, did nobody else think that was unusual? Um, the curtain that tears apparently is very thick from the top to the bottom, and that just represents, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, but it represents God opening the door so that we can have full access to him. Um, the earthquake nobody's noticing an earthquake with all these things. And then the tombs opening up, that just stands for itself. So I think that Christ dying on the cross is so unbelievable for us. It's just too much for us to really comprehend. He did this for our sins. He did this for my sins. And it's really more than I can comprehend. Now, as we look at Jesus and um, at the very end of his life, uh, everybody had deserted him. He was all alone. And let's look at some of the characteristics that he displayed that I think that would be beneficial for us to learn to display. He was a man of few words, and I love that. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply. It's like he knew when to speak, and he knew when not to. And I ask you, do you always know when to speak and when not to? I don't. Um, he defended himself to Pilate, but not to the chief priests. And it reminds me of the verse from Ecclesiastes 5, verse 2, 
God is in heaven and you are in, on earth, so let your words be few. There's a great song with that, and I just love that. I think, I think sometimes we speak too much. And then it also uh, reminded me of Matthew 7, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under your feet and then turn and tear you to, part, to pieces. I think, I think what m- reminds me of that is he knew when to just to move on. You know, he, taught, he, he responded, but it was time to move on. And to, to continue to argue with them about who he was was throwing pearls to pigs. The next characteristic, besides being a man of few words, um, he stuck with plan A. He didn't give up, even when he was mocked, even when he had that sign over his head, when he was stripped or teased. He wouldn't numb his pain with the wine because he, he, he predicted his sufferings and he was going to go through with it. And he even, back on, ser- back on the Sermon on the Mount, back in Matthew 5, he says, so he's predicting what's going to happen to him. I never had really thought about that. But it says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. So he, he did all these things. He was, he, someone you know, hit him, he, they took his clothes, and he was forced to go a mile. And I just think it's interesting that he was able to, he knew the plan, and he stuck with it. Um, the next characteristic that we need to learn to do is to control our responses. And I love this verse from 1 Peter 2. Um, down to 22. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He is our ultimate example. If y'all would have hurled insults at me, I would have been like, you just wait, buddy. I'm coming back. But he didn't do that. He just was quiet. He let him do it. He knew the plan. He stuck with it. And he controlled his responses. He could not control, he could have controlled his circumstances, but we can't. But what he's shown us is that we can control our responses. We can control our reactions and we can learn from him. And finally, he surrendered and obeyed. He may not have liked all that was happening, but he saw the big picture and it was love. It was love for you and love for me. Um, and he laid down his life. It was a choice. He was, not forced to, he was not forced to do this. He chose to do it out of love. John 10, 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And that's exactly what he did. He could have stopped this plan at any moment. So I think by surrendering, he was actually choosing um, not, he was not being forced. And Philippians 2, 5 talks about that he was made into a man in verse 8, and being humbled in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so, and then Hebrews 5, 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. So he learned obedience and he learned to surrender and we can learn from that as well. And last off, he finished well. He persevered, he obeyed the plan, he had right responses and he didn't give up. So as we consider our lesson this week, um, you probably did the lesson, you probably first read it and then you answered your questions and um, you may have talked about it at lunch with somebody, and you certainly talked about it in your small groups, but really, if we understood what all this meant, we would just, our only true response would be to either like be laying on the floor prostrate, um, singing holy, 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 or some other version of that, or, or we would be speechless, and we wouldn't even be able to really talk. I mean, this, this is more than we can just chat about. This, is more, this love is something we cannot understand, and yet he offers it to us. Romans 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. And I love that. Because, and, it, and the thing is, it's new every day. 
We can, we can sin and he continues to forgive us. He was, it's, it's an ongoing process. It's not just a one-time thing that saves us. It's something that we can call on every single day. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. He is the God of second chances. And I had once somebody ask me, why is it east to west and not north to south? And I love this idea because somebody told me when you're, tra- like if you, this is your globe, you're traveling up, you're going north, but then once you get to the top, now you're traveling south. But if you're starting and you're going east to west, so you start going east, when do you stop? That's how, fa- that's how much he has forgiven us. It doesn't stop. It continues to go on. And um, he has paid our sins in full and continues to do so. First um, Peter 2, 24 tells us, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So I used to think that this, this message of him on the cross was about my salvation for eternity, which it is. It's a great story, but it's also for now. By his sins, or, or so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. This is about now. This is about every day yielding yourself to his plan. And I'm running out of time, so I'm going to finish up. But, but when I was younger, when I was little, I heard the Bible stories and I knew them. And I thought that was all. Then I found out in high school, no, no, you need to respond to that. That's called being saved. You need to ask Christ to forgive your sins and come into your heart. And so I, I did that. And I thought that I was done then. And then I realized, no, I need to make him the Lord of my life, not just a savior, but Lord. And um, it's a continual process that goes on and on and on where you yield yourself and allow him to come in. And so that his, the, the price he paid on the cross is a continual thing. It's not just about your eternity and salvation, although that is of utmost importance, but it's about every single day yielding to him and allowing him to come in. Um, In closing, C.S. Lewis, um, this is from his book, Mere Christianity, the real problem of the Christian life comes where people do not usually look for it. It comes the very moment you wake up each morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists simply in shoving them all back and listening to that other voice, taking the other point of view, letting the other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in and so on all day, standing back from all your natural fussings and frettings, coming out of the wind. We can only do it for moments at first, but from those moments, the new sort of life will be spreading through our system because now we are letting him work at the right part of us. It is the difference between paint, which is merely laid on the surface, and a dye or stain, which soaks right through. So that is our goal, to let him soak in and become like him. So in closing, we need Christ every day, and his suffering allows us to come to him and be like him and have a new, fresh beginning each and every day. And so I'm going to finish with this funny prayer. Dear Lord, as far, so far today, I've done all right. I haven't gossiped, haven't lost my temper, haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm very thankful for that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed. And from then on, I'm probably going to need a lot more help. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that through it we can have salvation. We thank you what you did on the cross, Father, that it it brings us to you. We thank you for Jesus and the plan that he stuck with and obeyed and surrendered to so that we might have eternal life and that we also can draw closer to you each and every day as we yield our spirits to yours. Thank you for these women here today and pray that we can be more like you each and every day. In Christ's name, amen.